All right, if someone can explain to me why the guys on Georgia were so much faster than the guys on Notre Dame, that would really help me out. I don't understand. What was it, Brian Kelly? Oh, I'm with you. Will that guy please take responsibility at some point for his team? All right, I knew I was at risk predicting any kind of Notre Dame success last week, and it didn't pay off. So we're going to start talking about basketball from here on out? No. <laughs> Just kidding. We're actually going to talk about Zechariah. So um, let's go ahead and we'll get into it. Um, we're going to read just the first six verses. So Zechariah 1, 1 through 6. And this will really serve um, in the structure of Zechariah. This is the introduction. So as we read these six verses, we're thinking intro to the rest of Zechariah. So let's see what Zechariah has to say. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts proposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. As much as I can't explain why Notre Dame is so much slower, I also can't explain to you why growing up there was a poster in my room of a kitten. It was a kitten i got to tell you, I have no recollection of ever hanging that up. I used to cut out the pictures of Sports Illustrated and hang that all over my room. And I'll proudly talk about that. But I don't know how the kitten poster got there. I'm going to say my mother. I do remember what was on it. There was this... <laughs> why it had to be a kitten, I don't get it. But the message was, if God seems distant, who moved, or something along that line, right? If God seems far away, who left? Who moved? The idea was, if you want to leave God, you can. I found that to be true in my life as well. That there was a time, I can remember when I was 17 years old, my best friend died in a car accident, he and his brother. And I don't know if I ever really did it, as in carried it out, shaking my fist at God, but in my heart, in my head, 
That's essentially where I went. There was a line going on in my head, something like, God, if that's how you're going to play, then I'm out. That period of my life wasn't a good one. So I'm 17, 18. The previous four years haven't been good. It's been full of bad decisions. I'm sure all those bad decisions along the way through high school, even starting back in middle school, added to that poor response as well. But it didn't get any better. You probably could have guessed that, right? So I'm at this point now where I'm experiencing tragedy, and my response is, I'm going to pull away from God. I don't want anything to do with him. And that's how I moved into college. And going through college, I just look at it now. The first time I actually returned to campus with my kids, I remember it overwhelmed me. I didn't expect it. But I drove onto that campus, and I cried. It's because, and I was trying to hide it from my kids, because I'm sure they couldn't make sense of it. But I saw so many different buildings and places, and almost in every one I saw, I can remember bad decisions, more bad decisions, more painful consequences. It was this reality that if we want to leave, he lets us leave. Sometimes... I think we hear pieces of verses like, when we are faithless, he is faithful. For sure that's true. But that doesn't mean that we can't leave him. I mean, I think it's always helpful when you're trying to make a point to take the most extreme case. Take the most extreme case, and if it's true there, then we know it can be true. To me, the most extreme case is Judas, Judas Iscariot, right? Did he choose to leave Jesus? And when he chose, was he allowed to leave? Was he allowed to just go off on his own and reap the consequences, reap the whirlwind? I mean, he was right there on the inner circle, right? But he says... I'm not on Jesus' side. I'm not sure about this. So you see him step over. He literally betrays Jesus, right? Gets paid by those who are opposed to him. And then what we read about Judas is, it's all sad. It's all tragic. It's all bad. That Jesus refers to him in John 17 while he's praying. He's praying for his disciples and he says, none of them are lost. Kept them all. I've guarded them all while I was in this world, except for one. And he calls him the son of destruction. Right? In Matthew 26, what we read Jesus saying about Judas is, it'd be better if he was never born. That's how he ends. It ends so bad that it's like it should have never started. It'd be better if it never started. But scripture had to be fulfilled. That if we choose to go this way, there's consequences. Even in that verse, when we are faithless, he is faithful. That's 2 Timothy 2.13. It says in there, but if we deny him, he'll deny us. Whatever we think of that verse, 
And I think there's a few different ways to go. What we need to understand is Scripture's clear. If we choose to leave, we get to leave. There are consequences. He'll let us have that choice. The real question is if we choose to return, can we actually return? And the good news is, yes. If there's one sentence to take out of this introduction, one verse that we keep in our minds to say, here is the centerpiece of these first six verses. The centerpiece of the introduction. It is, return to me, and I will return to you. That the good news is, we can return. That what we see in those first six verses is it starts with a date. Hey, it gives us a date, and you can really nail down the date. We at point in time now in the Bible, you know, when we talk with Abraham, we're kind of guessing on dates. Anything in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we're really guessing. It's just like, it's almost like prehistory. <laughs> By Abraham, we're kind of guessing. Moses, we're still guessing. Who was that Pharaoh? We don't know. We're guessing. By the time we get to Zechariah here, the date, 520. 520 B.C. So here's the date. We're talking about a specific time that what we read in Zechariah, it's happening in a specific time. There'll certainly be times when we're reading Zechariah where it's just to be interpreted literally. 520 B.C. Second verse, the Lord was angry with your fathers. That's the whole verse. The Lord was angry with your fathers. So what's going on when they're hearing this? They're in Jerusalem, and it's destroyed. It's destroyed. And as they're looking around at this destroyed city, it's like, wow, how did this happen? Right? What happened? Well, here's verse 2. The Lord was angry with your fathers. Here are the consequences. And it's like, in case we miss it, like, whoa, how could God do that, right? God of love, for sure. God of mercy. But look how he's entitled. It's like three different times how they call it, what they refer to when they say the Lord. Third verse, return to me and I'll return to you, says who? Says the Lord of hosts. When we were reading it, it's almost so redundant. It's like, wow, can we change up the name a little bit? Like, this isn't how you could downgraded in English class for repeating yourself that many times in six verses, right? Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts. I grew up wondering, what, what is hosts? Hosts? Armies. Army. Lord of hosts, Lord of armies. So it's the Lord of hosts who is saying, return to me. Lord of armies, as you look around at your judged and destroyed city. Woo. Question in their minds as they look around at what God did. Can we return? And the answer, verse 3, return to me and I'll return to you. Return to me 
and I'll return to you. We read on that your fathers were actually given this same option. That the prophets spoke to them, we read in verse 4, and the prophets said to them, return from your evil deeds and your evil ways. But what do we hear? They didn't. They didn't hear. They didn't pay attention. And therefore, the anger and the destruction. They chose to go this way, and they got this mess that you're looking at. They chose not to. But we still can. Interesting verse, too, right? At the end of chapter six, at the end of verse six, it says they repented by the end. Right after it says, look, they didn't, and they got this destruction, then he starts asking these questions Where are your fathers? They don't live forever, do they? Even the prophets who delivered the warning, they don't live forever. But what is forever? My word. My word. Even your fathers came to believe that my word eventually always wins out. It actually says that those who weren't destroyed... The word it uses, it says repented in most of our translations. It's the same word as in verse 3. Return to me and I'll return to you. It says, oh, by the way, my word stands forever. Even your fathers got to the point where they returned. At least somewhat. They returned at least in this. They looked around at what happened to them and said, God's word wins out. That we ignored it when it was being told to us. We didn't pay attention. We didn't hear it. We looked back. And by the way, those looking back, they would have lost many. Family, friends, land, everything. They lose it. They look back, and what they see is that God's word wins out. That nobody lasts forever, but his word lasts forever. This is the message to all those who have returned from Babylon where they're in captivity, right? City gets destroyed. They get taken to Babylon. Seventy years later, about, they come back. They come back to this destroyed city. And the message they hear as they look around at the destroyed city and they're reminded that this was a consequence of ignoring God, of leaving him, that as they look around, the one-liner to take out when they ask, can we return, is yes. Return to me, and I will return to you. Good news to a people who had walked into consequences and for sure asked, is there any hope at all? Like, this isn't King Solomon moving back into Jerusalem. This is a little band of returning exiles in a city that's destroyed. Any hope? Yes. Return to me, and I'll return to you. As we continue to look into Zechariah, what I want to put out here as we move into it 
if we're going to interpret Zechariah correctly, is Zechariah is not going to now leave this introduction behind. Here's the introduction. We can feel it, I hope, right? We walked into the city, whoa, hopeless. No, hope. Return to me, I'll return to you. As we move through Zechariah, what we're going to see is that Zechariah elaborates on this returning. That's what Zechariah is going to do the rest of the book. And it makes sense, right? That sometimes we read the Bible, we break it up into such little pieces that we forget there's a continuity to it. Right? And it makes sense. It's so big. It's like hard to keep it all continuous. But if we're going to interpret properly, and we said last week, right, that a prophecy, it needs to be interpreted properly. It can be interpreted poorly. But prophecy, properly interpreted, always encourages faithfulness. Well, if we're going to properly interpret Zechariah, then we're going to have to remember the introduction, what he's dealing with is this phrase. Return to me, and I'll return to you. So, structure of Zechariah. Very, very, very simple structure. We can get more elaborate as we go on. Just remember, see that first bullet, that's our intro, right? I'm going to only say there's three pieces in the structure of Zechariah right now. We can add to it as we go. But if we don't get simple structure in our heads, then we'll never get it when we start trying to like add all the pieces. Simple structure, there's an intro. A six-verse intro to Zechariah. As we move into the next 14 chapters, there's really two clear styles, two big pieces. There's a section of visions. They all come in one night. It's like... It's like worse than, you know, Scrooge had, right? Where he has like a few visions, right? This is like seven or eight. It's not always clear. There's some debate. Like, is that the start of a new one? Or is that the same? I'm convinced seven, but if someone wants to say eight, okay. (laughs) But so let's say seven or eight visions that Zechariah has. And it takes up most of the first six chapters. Then there's a break and there's another section. And in the next section, there's two big oracles. These words from the Lord. The word is used, oracle or or burden. There's a few different ways to interpret it. But it's in verse 9-1 and verse 12-1. So the whole end of the book is these two big oracles from chapters 9, 10, and 11 and chapters 12, 13, and 14. It is a clear break in Zechariah. And... Per usual, the liberal scholars want to say, oh, that's two books. I don't think so. They tried to do the same thing with Daniel, remember? They tried to take, like, hey, all that historical stuff at the beginning of Daniel, it's like it's two books because then there's all this apocalyptic stuff at the end. But remember, we looked at Daniel and we saw those things are so tightly tied together, there's no way you can separate them. So same thing with Zechariah. There are two big chunks in it. All I want to say about the structure here is we're going to be aware that there's two big chunks and we're going to be aware that these two big chunks come after the intro. Makes sense, right? So when we're trying to interpret these visions and some of them are complicated, we're not going to forget that the intro to these visions was return to me and I'll return to you. 
that when we get into the, the oracles, these two big words from the Lord, we're not going to forget that they follow, return to me, and I will return to you. So what sorts of questions do you think Zechariah might be asking and answering in these visions and in these oracles? Well, these aren't all of them, but these are some of the things he's going to be asking and answering. And it makes sense, right? What happens if I don't return? All right, return to me and I'll return to you. You know what we're going to hear a little bit in Zechariah through these visions and oracles? Here's what happens if you don't. Another question, what happens if I do? Oh, we'll hear a little bit of that. Here's what happens if I do. Here's another big question. How does he return to me? What's this look like? So that when we look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and we hear, Behold, look, your king comes to you humbly, gently, riding on a donkey. That's in Zechariah 9.9. When we think, how does he return? Oh, there's an image for you. Right? There's an image. That makes sense. Because we know the intro. Return to me, and I'll return to you. Here's a literal picture of how he returns. One other thing I want to keep in mind. Zechariah elaborates on this returning. We'll see it as we move through the structure. We'll see it through the questions and answers that we get. But not just Zechariah. The entire Bible elaborates on this returning. Remember where Zechariah is in the timeline of all Scripture. And it's going to look like this. Remember the timeline we had last week? We put up three points. We put up Joshua, Solomon, and Zechariah, right? That's where we landed. Let's put up a couple more. Christ coming, and then way out there, Christ's return. That what we're going to see, that when we look at this timeline and we say, hmm, okay, return to me and I'll return to you. Here's Zechariah talking. What comes next in the Bible. There's a brief story, some brief stories on the restoration. That is, the Israelites returning from Babylon. It's even interesting how little attention it gets. But what gets a lot of attention? A lot of attention in our scriptures. Christ. So it's going to make sense to us that when we're reading Zechariah and hearing, return to me, and I will return to you, when we're asking, what happens if I don't? What happens if I do? What does it look like? What should I do now? All of those questions. Or we're looking forward and seeing Jesus. The whole restoration period is interesting. How many of you have heard more stories about Solomon than Zerubbabel? Everybody! How many of you know more about that Joshua and have heard more about the Joshua who led the Israelites into the Promised Land? 
How many of you have heard more about that Joshua than the Joshua in Zechariah? How many of you even knew there was a Joshua in Zechariah? That would be very impressive. The two big players outside of Zechariah in the book of Zechariah are Zerubbabel, who is the son of David, who builds the temple. That's interesting. <laughs> Here's the other thing. The high priest, who sometimes they're going to like have these images or these acting out of giving him a crown, his name is Joshua. By the way, Joshua in Hebrew and Jesus in Greek, these are the same names. So when we hear Joshua, it is, re, it is, it is normal to think Jesus. Why is it that those first two stories are so much more famous, get so much more playing time than the restoration? And not just in our Sunday school classes, but in the Bible too. Why is it? Because the whole restoration, while it has meaning in 520 B.C., the whole restoration is pointing towards a bigger player. I mean, this is what actually happens in Zechariah's time. The people return from exile, from Babylon, right? Almost like returning from Egypt, right? Almost like coming out of Egypt. They come out of Babylon. And they do what? All the exiles move into the promised land, and then there's a son of David who builds a temple. That sounds a whole lot like what happened with Joshua and Solomon. Right? That is the whole, why does that get so much more attention? Because this restoration it was almost like a playing out, a reminder of, here's what's going on again. It's going on again. But we want you to know, it's not really about what's going on. It's about who's coming. When we go to interpret Zechariah, we need to remember, there's a playing out here. It's like a replay of what already happened with Joshua and Solomon. But as we go to interpret it, we're remembering, but it's pointing hard towards Jesus. So that when we see, hmm, this might be adding too much to the timeline, but we're going to do it just because it's kind of fun. At least it's fun for us Bible nerds, all right? So I know that's some of you out there. Joshua, when Joshua moves into the promised land, that is promise fulfillment. It is huge promise fulfillment. Who was the promise made to? Abraham. Right, so Joshua moves into the promised land, and he's like, this is exactly what was promised to us from Abraham. When Solomon is sitting on the throne and builds the temple, that's promise fulfillment. Who was the promise made to? David. David. That what we see with Joshua and Solomon is this promise fulfillment. A promise made to Abraham and a promise made to David. And by the way, when Solomon builds the temple, he doesn't just reference the promise to David. He references the promise to Abraham too. He's like, these two go together. And here I'm telling you, it is being fulfilled. That's what we looked at last week, right? That's 1 Kings chapter 8. A literal fulfillment and a symbolic fulfillment. Because Jesus is going to come along and say, actually, I'm the son of David who builds the temple. When Zechariah returns with the people, 
That's promise fulfillment also. What promise? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. What did Jeremiah say was going to happen? He's in Jerusalem when the Babylonians are bringing a lot of pressure. What does he say is going to happen? Well, first he says, hey, bad news. You might as well give up. They're going to win. They're going to flatten us. Your rebellion, there's a price to be paid. It's going to get flattened. But here's the other thing he said. In 70 years, you'll come back. 70 years, you'll come back. There was another big promise Jeremiah made. What was it? And there's going to be a new covenant. A new covenant. That no longer will the law be written just on tablets. The law will be written on your heart. That restoration, Zechariah's time, while he'll certainly still reference the promises to Abraham and David, you'll still see it and feel it. But there's a new promise here too. A promise from Jeremiah that you'll return and there'll be a new covenant. Zechariah will keep pointing to the one who brings in the new relationship, the new covenant. Return to me, and I'll return to you. And what will it look like? (laughs) It'll look like Jesus. We're going to keep seeing Jesus come up. And it makes sense. Okay. Hopefully that was as fun for you as it was for me. (laughs) There is an application today, though. We really can look at Zechariah and say, okay, how does this apply to me? And I think what we ask is, do I need to return? Do I need to return? Is there anything I'm hanging on to? And by the way, we're never done asking this question. (laughs) That's why Psalm 19 says, forgive me of my unknown sin. Because we're never quite sure if we're really hanging on to anything or not. We're not sure. Some of the ways it becomes obvious that we need to return... That God's actually calling me to return in this moment is when I look around at my city, I see consequences. I don't know. Have you recently lost your job for disciplinary reasons? DUIs can do this sort of thing. Lots of consequences where we can look at, whoa, this is a consequence of my decision. I need to return. But it's not just consequences, right? It could be, maybe there's just a level of anxiety in your life right now. Just a worry. It's like, this actually isn't what God has for you. He has peace. We all struggle with anxiety. What's the answer to anxiety? Return to him. Because when I'm worrying, I talked about it last week, right? I'm so worried about my daughter's future. What's the answer? Return to him. Trust him. Stop acting like you control her future. Just love her. Pray for her. Return to him. Let him lead. So maybe it's an anxiety that's got you thinking, I need to return to him. Maybe it's a series of bad decisions. Maybe there hasn't even been any consequences yet at least none that you're aware of. But you look back on these repeated bad decisions and you know, i got to return to him. I'm off on my own. Maybe too many relationships in your life have broken apart 
You know, when one breaks down, it's kind of easy to say, like, in your head, maybe you don't say it out loud, maybe you do, then there's a bigger problem. He's a jerk. <laughs> hey, he's a jerk. That's why the relationship broke down. But after we say that for, like, a few different people, well, maybe there's another jerk involved. <laughs> and we look at that and think, I need to return. It's time to return. Okay. What does it look like to return? You know, I, I don't really know. <laughs> I don't really know what it looks like for you. I know it involves turning to him, right? At least just literally turn to him, Lord, lead. I think of the prodigal son. At some point, right, he's playing in the pig slop long enough. He's like, okay, I'm going to start walking back. I'm going back. He has to turn and start walking. By the way, the father comes running to him after he turns. There really is a return to me, and I'll return to you. So we turn to him. I don't know, I can think of a period in my life about four years after I was shaking my fist at God. What, what did returning look like? Oh, definitely some tears. Both sad and joyful. I get to return. So sorry, so much pain. But I get to return. And then what did returning look like specifically? I don't know, I started going to church again. <laughs> a lot of my friends changed. I didn't really even choose it. It just happened. Friends changed. A lot of habits changed. That was all when I was 22. I didn't go to celebrate recovery until I was 32. Because <laughs> then at 32, it's like, well, I guess more has to change. I guess I need to return again. That makes sense to me. Now at 50, it's like, oh, you return every minute. <laughs> we return to him. I'm not sure what it looks like for you. It probably looks something at least like this. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me even of the stuff I'm not aware of. And lead me on. And by the way, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the good news. That if I'll return to you, you will return to me. He says to all of us, return to me. And I will return to you. Amen. Have a wonderful week.